turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. If you're visiting with us today, just to let you know, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We finished, it, we finished a series in Genesis several months ago. And so we've decided in this, before we get into another full book, we wanted to uh, walk through the Sermon on the Mount because of the very practical, timely implications that, is, that, 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 that are found within, uh, within its contents. And so Matthew chapter 7. And today we're going to look at verse 6. But before we look at verse 6, I'm going to back up to verse 1. And I just want to read through that to kind of give you more of a landing strip for this, for this takeoff, right? So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, says this. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you will use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then right here, church, Jesus seems to shift the dialogue. So here we are talking about judging, okay? We've got proper judging, improper judging. Don't, don't, it's not saying don't ever judge because there's a place for Christians to judge. There's a place for Christians to make a call based on fact. There's a place for Christians to look at one another within the body of Christ and say, I'm just calling a spade a spade here. And this is what it is based on fact. And that's judgment, but it's righteous judgment. So, but Jesus says, hey, it's well and good to do that. But before you run off trying to point out the speck in your brother or your sister's eye, make sure you take care of this log in your own eye. In other words, don't be so quick to correct everyone else and act as if you have nothing to be corrected in your own life because inevitably we always do. So, Austin dealt with all of that last week. But now Jesus starts to seemingly go down this different road. And he says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, and they turn to attack you. Let me read that one more time, and just consider the weight and the implications of what Jesus is saying. He says in the negative, Do not give dogs what is holy or sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we indulge in your word this morning, Father, that you would renew our minds, that you would foster in us a greater allegiance to your word and to its authority. Lord, that we would not appeal to anything in this world, to anything extra biblical, but that we would appeal to you and we would appeal to your word for all of our authority. Lord, that we would buy into it wholesale. We would not question it, Lord, but rather we would live by it, that we might be governed by it. Father, I pray that we would have an understanding this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would be palatable to us 
that it would be tasteful to us, that we would taste and see that you are good. Lord, even when we look at this text and it seems difficult from the outset, Lord, would you be so gracious to give us clarity? Would you be so gracious to give us the understanding that we need so that we can apply this text and so that we can rightly divide the word of God and rightly apply it to our lives? And so that as we carry it and we carry its meaning and implications from this place into the world, Lord, that we might be effective for your kingdom and that we might use the truth from your word as the ammunition to wage war against the enemy of this world, the prince of this world. In Christ's name, amen. So this seems to be a difficult transition. Jesus talks about judging. Don't be so quick to investigate or perform surgery for the speck that's in your brother's eye and, and neglect the log that's in your own eye. And that's hard enough to hear. But then what Jesus says seems, it seems to stand against what we consider to be kind of uh, the mantra of evangelicalism. And that is when Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What is Jesus saying? I'll just start by saying Jesus is saying this. There may come a time in the life of a follower of Christ who is faithfully given the gospel to the lost, who is suffering scrutiny, persecution, uh, being mocked, being scorned. There may come a time where Jesus says, through the Holy Spirit, Wipe the dust off of your feet. He may say to you, these pearls, these righteous judgments, these divine truths that have been given to you from God the Father, the gospel, ethics, morality, sacrifice, mercy, meekness, all these things that you're talking to this person about, most importantly, the gospel unto salvation, the person who's antagonistic towards you, the person who is scoffing you, mocking you, That person, he's saying, there may come a time where you wipe the dust off of your feet and you cease and desist giving them these pearls, where you cease and desist giving them these things that are holy and are sacred. And that's a hard pill to swallow because our default mode is to say no matter what the cost, no matter what the occasion, And no matter what the consequence, I will expend my life for the sake of the gospel. This should be the mantra of the believer. It was most definitely the mantra of the disciples, of the apostles. And so it should most definitely be our mantra today in the 21st century as followers of Christ. Jesus uses some very peculiar terms here. He uses the term dog and pig, but he uses it to to describe a certain type of person. So let let me go ahead and lay down my disclaimer, or let me go ahead and lay down what I'm not saying about this text. I want to be very clear, whether you are here in person or whether you're listening to to this just in audio, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that this text says that you decide for yourself— that you can just walk up and determine 
by any type of conversation that you've had with someone that you can just walk away from the encounter. That you get to determine who receives the gospel and who does not. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you're free to disengage at any point that you want. I don't think that's what this text is saying. I think there's so much more to it, which I'll explain later, but I just want to be very clear. I'm not giving you a free pass to avoid people that might be antagonistic or to drop a gospel bomb on them and say, you know what, however it comes out, it comes out, I'm out of here. I'm not saying you have permission to do that because I don't believe the Bible's given you permission to do that. If we just look at the disciples, if we just look at the way they died, they died badly, right? Why did they die badly? Because they gave the gospel. They pursued Jesus, and the evidence or byproduct of that pursuit was eventually them giving them their lives physically for the sake of the gospel. And they faced persecution. They faced those who would scorn, those who would mock, and those who would antagonize. But Jesus does say something here that we just can't ignore. It would be easy if we could just turn our faces away from the Scripture and act like it's not even there. But he says it. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy and sacred and do not cast your pearls before swine because those type of people, they will trample these divine truths underfoot. And not only that, but this type of person will turn and attack you. They will turn and attack you. You see, pearls are a fitting metaphor because of their value now and most definitely during the first century. Affording a pearl would often mean selling all of your possessions. So Jesus, who is such a great wordsmith, he takes this term pearl, and people would hear this, and they would know he's speaking of something that had very high value. We're talking about a costly jewel, and perhaps one that was just not readily available, although the gospel is, I understand that. But to use the term pearl really helped his audience understand the value of what he was speaking Pearls, uh, pearls in this text, along with holy or sacred, are synonymous with one another. Meaning the, uh, the righteous judgments, meaning biblical truth, and meaning the gospel. These things are of the highest value. Anything that God has given us in his word, in his teachings, anything that he has given us is to be held in such high esteem and to be valued into such a lofty position because they're divine in nature, because they're eternal, because they're unwavering and unchanging. The word of God is, is alive and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it, and it cuts through joint and marrow. There's something about the word of God that sets it apart. There's something about divine truth that makes it sacred, that makes it holy, and that makes it a pearl. But he uses other terms as well. He uses the term dogs, and as much as we love dogs... The Bible doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about them. They just don't. In the upstate, it's a unique situation. Coming from Mississippi, where dogs, absolutely, we had dogs as pets, no problem. But people were not as fanatical about dogs in Mississippi as they are here in the upstate. I'd never heard of such things as a golden doodle or a multi poo or a labradoodle or any of these things. Back there, we just had mutts and labs, basically. But dogs are a big deal here. I see bumper stickers. I mean, there are parks that are built that are designed just to take your dogs so that your dogs can play with other dogs. 
Historically, dogs in the street, as far as the Bible is concerned, were, were held in very low esteem. So don't think of this in the way that you think of dogs now. Think of this as not a domesticated animal, but rather a wild, scavenging animal. But don't take my word for it. The scriptures have tons to say. Proverbs 26.11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So this is kind of pejorative language pointed at the fool, but what makes it so bad is that the fool is being likened unto the dog that returns to his vomit. And I don't know if you've ever seen a dog do this, but it's, it's profoundly nasty. As a matter of fact, my dog just this morning vomited right outside of our bedroom. My son overfed him, the dog got full, and therefore he threw up. And my son comes in and says, well, I think you got to pick up the, the vomit. And I had to because my son has a sensitive gag reflex. So if he tries to clean it up, it's a whole mess. So I have to do this. And I thought to myself, if I just wait long enough, eventually Toby will return to his vomit. And I'll have a, a great image or a video, if I, if I want to, to share with the church to further illustrate my point. But I thought that would be really gross, so I didn't do it. But the sentiment is there, like a dog who returns to his vomit so too is a fool uh, who repeats his folly. But listen to Revelation twenty-two fourteen through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the what? The dogs. The dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So there's a list of people, and those people are not held in high regard. And the first in the list are the dogs. These people referred to as dogs. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. David says, For dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircles me. Is David speaking about dogs? No, he's speaking of people. He's speaking of the same type of, of people that Jesus addresses. So again, we're not just dealing with a typical unbeliever. When Jesus says, wipe the dust off your feet later in the book of Matthew, or when Jesus is saying now, don't cast your pearls before swine and don't give to dogs what is holy or sacred. He's not just saying any unbeliever. He's not saying that you can just withhold the gospel from anybody who's anybody that you come, that you come in contact with who says, thanks but no thanks, to the gospel message. He's not saying that. As a matter of fact, he's not saying that just because you encounter someone who is antagonistic or scornful towards the gospel or even hostile towards you and the gospel, he's not saying that you can automatically walk away from that person, I don't believe. I think this text presupposes the gospel has been given. Because otherwise, how do you know that they're antagonistic towards the gospel if you've withheld it from them in the first place? I think this text, in fact, presupposes that the gospel has been given. It presupposes evangelistic action. It presupposes giving a defense, I believe. And upon that presentation, someone is found to be dog-like or pig-like. In that, they respond with antagonism or scorn. I think that's who Jesus is speaking of. But Jesus doesn't just talk about dogs. He references pigs. Pigs are viewed in similar fashion to dogs. Eating a pig is an abomination in Isaiah 65. The prodigal son left 
his father's home in Luke 15, and I realize this is a parable, but the sentiment is there. He leaves his home, and the way that Luke, as he writes, lets us understand the level of destitute that this son had gotten himself into is by describing it in this way. He says that he left, he spent his wealth on loose living, and it came to the point where he was sharing from the same trough that the pigs were eating from. And this is indicative of his level of, his level of destitute. I mean, he was at the bottom. And the way that we know it, the word picture that we have, is that he was side by side with the pigs. So Jesus' language is very intentional. Don't ever think that Jesus just speaks arbitrarily. Everything he says is calculated. Everything that the Holy Spirit inspires the 40-something authors of the Bible to write is, is, is calculated and considered in the best possible way of speaking to us. So we understand that this is where we are in the text. And maybe this is kind of hard to digest right now. Maybe it doesn't set well in, with, uh, in our mouths as we're tasting just a sample. But I think what this text is calling us to do is to recognize a few key things. So I want to walk through this, and we'll try to walk through this quickly. But I want to walk through just in this one verse, what are some key things that maybe we're being called to recognize? So let's get through these. The first thing, and I think this will be the most difficult, and then, and then we'll start seeing uh, hope come to light here very soon. But the first thing, I think, is that we have to recognize that our responsibility to any particular unbeliever may only be for a season. Let me say that again. I think we need to recognize that our responsibility to any particular unbeliever may only be for a season. It might only be for a season. So here's my objective I want to show you that there may come a time when God removes you from a situation, particularly a situation where you are giving someone the gospel. The dogs and the pigs of this passage, they prove to be a particular type of person, which we've already discussed. And what Christ is doing is he's drawing a line of distinction between those who simply do not believe and those who are antagonistic in their unbelief. So we have two different people. So if you share a cubicle or if you share time or life in any sense with someone who's not a believer and you're sharing with them and they're giving you the thanks but no thanks, they might extend a good courtesy to you and say, well, I'll listen to what you have to say. Then I don't think you have any grounds to walk away unless the Holy Spirit says something. Because that in this text, that's not who Jesus is speaking of. Jesus is speaking of those who you give the gospel to, but in their unbelief, they're actively hostile and they're antagonistic towards it. So this text does not mean that we wipe the dust from our feet or cease casting our pearls before all unbelievers if they are uninterested in the gospel. This is a particular type of person, the scoffer, the mocker, the antagonist. I think to understand Jesus' statement is hard enough, but to adopt it wholesale is even more difficult because our default mode as Christians is, again, to share these pearls no matter the danger, no matter the cost, and no matter the consequence. And I don't think that's wrong. Again, it's not wrong to say, I have counted the cost and I will give my life 
for the sake of the gospel. Praise God. I think that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. But just like Solomon wrote in Proverbs 9-8 when he says, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. I think the sentiment is that there comes a time where that rebuke or that righteous judgment or that gospel presentation or whatever it is that's divine truth that you're trying to give to this person, there may come a time where Jesus says, move on. And it might be that God sends someone else in your place. It might be that God doesn't send someone else in your place, but he does it himself, just like he did with the Apostle Paul. We don't know that. John Calvin said that dogs and pigs refers to persons of any race who have given clear evidences of rejecting the gospel with vicious scorn and hardened contempt. And you say, why is, what could be so bad that God would say, wipe the dust from your feet? What could be so heinous that God would say, stop casting these pearls before dogs? There is a high price for those who suppress the truth of God. Do you understand that? There is a high price. Listen, Paul explains this in Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And this, this pertains to every, every person. You realize this, right? He says again, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they honor God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And listen to this. Therefore, here, here's God's response to this. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator or sorry, the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Who is the active agent here? Who is the active agent that is handing these suppressors of the truth over to their lust? It's God. If God will hand suppressors of the truth over to their own lust, if God will condemn them in this way, and let's make no mistake, their sin already condemns them. They've already condemned themselves in their unbelief, right? But if God will do that, then it would make sense to us that God in his goodness and in his righteous judgments, that God may at some point in our lives call us to cease and desist casting our pearls before swine. In the scriptures, Jesus, he instructs his disciples to move on in the event that there are those who do not welcome them and do not want to hear their message, that's Matthew 10, 14. Wipe the dust off your feet. The pearls that Jesus speaks of are, are, are the truths of God. 
the gospel, the reality of sin, those things. And to scoff at or to be antagonistic towards the gospel is to wage war against Christ himself. There is a high price to pay when someone is scornful and antagonistic towards the gospel. So here's, here's this statement. If we're to cease and desist giving the gospel, what about basic right and wrong? What about morality or ethics? Aren't those things for everyone? If someone rejects the gospel, okay, okay, that's fine. Well, well what about me just giving them basic morality or teachings on basic morality, just ethics in general, you know, just about being a decent person and a decent member of society? Would you be giving them those things for their sake? Or would you be giving them those things for your sake? Do you want someone to conduct themselves in a certain way so that it makes them more palatable for you or makes the world a more, or an easier place or a better place for you to coexist? See, the problem is that none of these things outside of the gospel, none of these things matter for them because the gospel is what gives substance to morality. The gospel is what gives substance to Christian ethics. Don't you recall Jesus saying that our righteousness is as filthy rags or your righteousness is as filthy rags? Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you are nothing. In Ephesians, he says, not only were you in darkness, but you were darkness. So any attempt to offer God anything outside of Jesus is fruitlessness, is worthless because it's not filtered through and provided by an identity in Jesus. So admittedly, it's a hard pill to swallow, but I do believe that we're to recognize that our responsibility to any particular unbeliever may only be for a season. It may not, but it may very well be for a season. But there's a few other things to recognize. I think also we got to recognize that the biblical truth written to any unbelieving audience is limited. I think the truth that's written to unbelieving audiences is a limited truth. It's truth fully, but there's only so much of it that's actually written to an unbelieving audience. And I want to show that the contents of Scripture pertains more to a regenerate audience than to an unbelieving audience. Consider this, to the saint, this is what is written, Christian ethics. When you go through the epistles, you read things about mercy, kindness, sacrifice, forgiveness, selflessness, uh, selflessness, etc., these are characteristics that will bring glory to the Lord, but only from the believer and only through Jesus Christ and the identity that the gospel has provided because it's Christ's righteousness. That's the filter that these things are coming from. Not our own righteousness because it's filthy, right? To the saint, the scriptures are written, the gospel as it pertains to spiritual maturation, as it pertains to sanctification. That's, that, was, uh, that was Martin Luther when he said to his, when he, when he continued to share the gospel with the, with the church body and they came to him and said, you know, we're in Christ. Why do you keep sharing the gospel with us? And he says, I'll stop preaching the gospel when you start believing the gospel. He wasn't saying that they were lost. He was saying that the gospel doesn't just pertain to a moment when you become regenerate, the gospel pertains to every aspect of your life. It shapes you. 
you consider it, it, it helps it helps you work through your decisions. It is who you are. It's a new identity. You're a new creature. And there should be a byproduct of that. That is walking in a manner worthy of your calling. So there's the gospel that's, that's, that's written as it pertains to believers. What about hope and grace? What about peace and love? These things pertain to the believer in a very specific way. And the majority of these things that are written are to the believer in a way that they're to conduct their lives and the hope that they have in Christ. But to the sinner, but to the sinner is written the realities of the fall. To the sinner is written the need, because of the fall of man, because of sin, the need for the gospel unto salvation and the power of God therein where man can find salvation in the gospel. And granted, there's plenty of it, but as far as the vast contents of Scripture, the majority of it is written to a believing audience. It's written to a believing audience. So that's why I would say because the gospel gives substance to morality and Christian ethics, that's why I would say we don't spend our time trying to convince someone to be a nice person or to be a good person for the sake of society when there is no goodness in someone, not at all. It's the gospel that they need. So in light of this truth, how do we come to a place of peace with walking away from those who need the gospel? How do we come to a place where we can stomach wiping the dust off of our feet, or ceasing and desisting giving these pearls? Well, I think that's the third recognition that we need to give, and that's to recognize that at the heart of following Christ lies a strong adherence to the sovereignty of God. Listen to what I'm saying. You want to understand this? Do you want this to be palatable? Do you want to sleep at night? Here's how you do it. You recognize that at the heart of following Christ lies a strong adherence to the sovereignty of God. My objective here is to show you that the only fail-safe we have in anything is to trust God. Think about the things that bring us comfort and peace. They may seem to be comforting, but they always leave room for concern. Why? Because they're not fail-safe. They're not 100% fail-safe. And let me give you some examples. I feel comforted when the fastened seatbelt light goes off on a plane. You know that I do not like to fly. But for some reason, and it makes zero sense to me. It's not logical at all. I get that. But for some reason, there's a comfort that comes over me when that fastened seatbelt light goes off because that means we're in smooth air. That means they don't expect any problems. That means it's safe to stand up and move around the cabin. That's a good sign. It's a positive indicator, and it makes me feel good. But should it alleviate me of all fears as someone who has high anxiety and gets in a plane and that multiplies? No, it shouldn't because there's only 5,000 other things that could go wrong to bring that plane plummeting to the earth at 500 miles an hour. So it's a very limited comfort because it's not fail-safe. I also feel comforted knowing that, that there are some security measures that are taken to protect my kids when they're at school. That brings me comfort. I am comforted by the fact, and I have a certain modicum of peace when I consider that you have to kind of go through a lot in order to get into the school that my kids are attending. I mean, there's a check-in system. There's a locking system. There's all kinds of stuff. You know, is it the best? Is it state-of-the-art? No. 
Is it something? Absolutely. And something brings me a level of comfort. But at the end of the day, is it fail safe? No. There's always room for concern. There's always something that could pop up because it's not fail safe. I feel comforted when I go get blood work done and I get a positive report back from the doctor. You know, uh, over a year ago, I was having some symptoms that seemed to be symptomatic of uh, thyroid, a thyroid problem, thyroid disease, thyroid disorder. And I, I had blood drawn and my numbers came back great. And so that brought me comfort and alleviated uh, a certain amount of worry. But did it completely eradicate any concern at all? Well, no, because there's only so many things that can go wrong and, and be harmful to my body. There's so much that can still happen. We just ruled out one thing at the moment. And why is it that I don't have this lasting comfort, lasting peace, lasting joy from that? It's because it's not fail-safe. It's just not. The only fail-safe we have in anything is in the sovereignty of God, is in the rule, authority, and the absolute divine control of all things that God has. And the reason I bring this up is because admittedly, it may be tough to walk away from someone if you feel the, the Holy Spirit leading you away. If you feel like you've exhausted yourself and all you're getting is scorn, scoff, and antagonism. And if you feel that God has freed you, I want you to know that you can sleep at night. As we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, just before we started chapter 7, what does Jesus address in chapter 6? Anxiety. Worry. And ultimately, he says, you have nothing to worry about because I know your needs and I will meet them. And he will meet the needs that he feels you have, not just what you think you need. If you can trust God with your life, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the argument in Matthew 6, then you can trust God with someone else's life. So here's my question. Do we trust God? <coughs> Excuse me. Do we trust God enough to leave someone with the gospel even though they reject it? Or do we stay and push the issue? You have to be very careful here. If God is saying wipe the dust, if God is saying cease and desist, then you have to be careful of your motives for staying. And here it is, be careful because sometimes staying is an indication of trusting in our own strength and efforts to save the individual rather than trusting in God's ability to save them. There's some slippery ground here if you're not careful. How do I sleep at night? Because Jesus never ever said that salvation belongs to me. He said it belongs to himself. This means that it, has, that, it, that it is his to give and that it's his to grant. We are the messengers that provide the truth. God is responsible for bringing the increase. He's responsible for bringing that truth to bear on the life of its recipient. He did it for Paul and he's done it for so many others and he's done it for all of you. We trust him to do his work. We trust him to be sovereign. Ultimately, leaving someone means that we are not only trusting God with our lives, but trusting God with the lives of others. And I think this is particularly comforting to a spouse who's married to an unbelieving spouse, a spouse that has spent years 
exhausting themselves to give their husband or to give their wife the gospel. Only to have it thrown back in their face. Only to have it uh, treated with flippancy and disrespect. And I think it's comforting for the spouse that has exhausted themselves to say, you know what, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my eloquence is not fail-safe. At the end of the day, my passion and my persuasive tactics are not fail-safe. But the sovereignty of God is. And so I trust in that. I think this is how Christian parents cope with unbelieving children. If you have children that you've modeled the gospel and presented the gospel to, and they're just not interested or maybe even antagonistic, there's hope. There's hope because at the end of the day, God is responsible for salvation and God is sovereign. It may not mean walk away and never deal with the gospel again, but no matter what it means, the one thing that does not change is that God is sovereign and that he will use the gospel to save those whom he calls. Abraham Kuyper, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. It's all his. It's all his. Everything. Your child is his, not yours. Your job is his. Your platform is his. Your health is his. Your home, your car, it's his. He just allows you stewardship over certain things, but all are His. And I think when we recognize that the heart of following Christ lies a strong adherence to the sovereignty of God, then these hard texts become so much more palatable for us. So not only do we recognize the sovereignty of God, but we also have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is competent to do His job. We have to recognize that, that the Holy Spirit is competent to do His job. And here's the objective, to show the role of the Holy Spirit in leading the believer towards making decisions and leading the lost towards making decisions. Part of the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin. This is what... This is what John, John 16, 8 through 11 teaches us. It says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? To convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. To convict sin, because they do not believe in God or to convict sinners. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. Am I saying that he convicts every single person in the world? Not necessarily. That's not how I would interpret that. But whatever the Holy Spirit's role is, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is competent to do it well. Not just well, but to do it perfectly. And I think a lot of times the Holy Spirit takes a back seat in our theology. 
I think he does. I think he takes a back seat. We don't consider the Holy Spirit a lot. And I think to, to, as an indictment on us, I think we treat the Holy Spirit as a third wheel rather than the third person of the Godhead. So we have to realize that the Holy Spirit has a number of responsibilities and he does them and he does them well. Reformed Dutch pastor and theologian J.H. Bavink says this. He says, The Holy Spirit, using the biblical message of the cross, the gospel, awakens in man that deeply hidden awareness of guilt. He convinces man of sin, even where previously no consciousness of sin was apparently present. The Holy Spirit uses the word of the preacher and touches the heart of the hearer, making it accessible to the word. The Holy Spirit does this, and I agree with everything that this man is saying. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit, working His perfect will to His perfect end. So if God calls you to cease and desist casting these pearls before swine, if He calls you to cease giving to dogs what is holy and what is sacred then you can sleep at night. Why? A, because you've given them the gospel. You've given them the number one piece of criterion that, that is necessary for life and faith in Jesus. You've given them that, and you can absolutely trust that the Holy Spirit moves in if he chooses to, and if he chooses to do that, he will bring it to its end, and he will affect the change that is necessary in their life for salvation. This is just what the Holy Spirit does. So we would be fools to not trust in his competency. And we would be fools to treat him as a third will rather than the third person of the Godhead. So we have to recognize the Holy Spirit and that he is competent to do his job. And the last thing is this. We got to recognize that divine truth is of highest value. Jesus uses the words dog and pig to describe a particular type of person. And Jesus uses the word pearls to describe divine truth. Pearls have high value and they're precious. Things that are holy and sacred are set apart. They are distinct from any other thing. And that's what we have in the divine truth of God. Let this weigh on you this morning that not only are you the recipients of divine truth, but God in his grace awakened faith in you and open your eyes to see pearls instead of folly. Because that's what is seen by those who are perishing. They see folly. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in his first letter. He says, let it Way, he says, for the word of God or for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. So I think we recognize that the divine truth is of the highest value. I think if we back up and take a wide angle lens, what is Jesus wanting us to take away? He's wanting us to take away the fact that there is a treasure that we have in the divine truths of God 
that are beyond comparison to any other thing because God himself is beyond comparison to any other thing. But as a practical note, I want to help you with this. I think when we are speaking to others about God, I think it's important that we're speaking to God about others. I think there's a tandem relationship to praying for those who you're evangelizing. And I'm going to say this by way of a conclusion that again, I'm not saying that every unbeliever that we encounter, we wipe the dust off of our feet or we cease and desist giving these pearls. But I think rather than that, until the Lord makes it absolutely abundantly clear that we're to move on and move out, I think our goal is to labor, to labor for men, to labor for the souls of men, to pray for the souls of men, to pour ourselves out, as Paul said, as a drink offering in order that, in order that those who Christ has called will come to faith by way of the gospel. Jesus even said that he would give Peter's the key, he would give Peter the keys to the kingdom. He's given him the gospel. He's given the church the gospel, and those are the keys to the kingdom. And this is the way in which people come to know Jesus is through the gospel. So I want to be very clear in closing, and that is to give the gospel. Leave this place and labor for men and labor for women and wage war against the world, wage war against the enemy as you fight for the souls of those that the Lord may in his goodness and his kindness bring to himself and rescue from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray together.